Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the 49ers Plus podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this week we will recap the 41-23 wildcard win over the Seattle Seahawks and preview the divisional round matchup against the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night. In the plus section, we're going to talk a little bit more streaming TV, how Netflix rates their shows and why there have been a rash of cancellations recently, the possibility of streaming services being consolidated. I want to look back at some video game console sales and usage in the last year, and we'll conclude making our divisional uh, weekend game breakdown. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. So it didn't look good early. And by early, I mean the entire first half. But San Francisco woke up in the second half, put the clamps on the Seahawks, and the offense woke up for that big 18-point win. So let's go over the stats and the yardage. Total yards, 505 to 332 for San Francisco. Turnovers, two for the Seahawks. Time of possession, five minutes and 30-second advantage for San Francisco in first downs, 24 to 22 for San Francisco. Passing, Brock Purdy, 18 of 30, 332 yards, three passing touchdowns, one rushing touchdown. Geno Smith, 25 of 35, 253 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception. Rushing, Christian McCaffrey, 15 for 119 yards. Debo Samuel, three for 32. And Eli Mitchell, a strange nine rushes for two yards. For the Seahawks, Kenneth Walker, 15 rushes for 63 yards and one touchdown. Receiving Debo, 6 for 113 and a touchdown. Brandon Ayuk, 3 for 73. George Kittle, 2 for 37. And for the Seahawks, DK Metcalf had a big game, 10 for 136 and two scores. Tyler Lockett, 6 for 39. Grades per pro football focus on offense, top five. Debo, running back Jordan Mason, albeit only on five snaps. Guard Spencer Buford. George Kittle and wide receiver Jawan Jennings. On defense, linebacker Demetrius Flanagan fouls on 18 snaps. Defensive end tackle uh, Charles Amenahu. Cornerback Diamador Lenore. Linebacker Dre Greenlaw. And backup safety George Odom on 18 snaps. So looking at sacks and turnovers, there were three sacks total by the 49ers. Two by Charles Amenahu, One by Eric Armstead, which was in the beginning of the game, the first quarter. And the interception was by Diamador Lenore. Injuries coming out of that game, very minor. Jawan Jennings and defensive end Samson Ebukam have minor ankle injuries. They are considered day-to-day. So even though the first half as a whole didn't look or feel <laughs> too good if you were watching it for San Francisco, Seattle's first two drives were awful. They were three and out. So the immediate beginning for San Francisco was great. They got two three and outs. San Francisco gets a field goal on their first drive and a touchdown on their second drive, which was powered by McCaffrey's 68-yard run and then punctuated by McCaffrey's three-yard touchdown catch to go up 10-0. And watching the game, that was the punch him in the mouth, get up big early, kind of try to take the hope away from Seattle in the first quarter. Credit Seattle, though. They responded. They traded scores on the next drive. Seattle scored a touchdown, a Kenneth Walker run. San Francisco gets a field goal their next drive. So it's 13-7. to 
And then Seattle goes ahead on a 50-yard touchdown bomb from Geno Smith to DK Metcalf, 14-13. to And this is where I started yelling at the TV. Well, I was yelling at the TV before that. But this is where, before this play happened, where I was yelling at the TV. And why? Because D'Amico Ryans, again, and he was doing it before this play, bringing everybody up, bringing Talanoa Hufunga up, having one deep safety, and everybody is playing man up on Seattle's receivers. And in terms of matchups, I like Tyler Lockett on Diamador Lenore, and generally DK Metcalf on Charvarius Ward, especially if we're talking about a stop and go or a go route or a bomb. Charvarius Ward had a good game back in Seattle, but they weren't stretching the field with Metcalf. So the underneath stuff, the curls, the ins, the outs, the slants, Ward was on him. He can't, Charvarius Ward can't run with DK Metcalf. That's not a slight. Not many cornerbacks in the league can run with Metcalf. He has world-class speed. And the result was Metcalf getting behind Ward, a beautiful pass by Geno Smith and Seattle, who looked really, I mean, granted it was 13 to seven. It didn't look totally lifeless, but it looked like San Francisco had a good handle on the game. But the defense, again, I don't mind sometimes D'Amico Ryan's aggressiveness, but you can be aggressive rushing five instead of four, maybe showing a blitz and dropping out of it. But this game, to me, and all games moving forward, especially teams that are more explosive than Seattle, make a team like Seattle or Dallas this week earn every drive. Play coverage as much as you can. Play two safeties deep as much as you can. Go back more to the 2019 philosophy of a bend but don't break defense because this defense will break playing man up, blitzing, and getting beat for a 50-yard touchdown bomb or something on a slant or a corner falls down. I don't know if D'Amico Ryan's doesn't have that much faith in their in the 49ers front four in their defensive line to generate pressure or faith in general in their front seven or no faith in Hufunga covering as a safety, no faith in Diamador Lenore covering as a corner, although he did have an interception and he played actually a pretty good a pretty good game. And again, I go I go back to this phrase that I mentioned about Kyle Shanahan. There is a difference between being aggressive and reckless. And I think as a coach or a coaching staff, you should always be thinking about what's the risk versus what's the reward of any certain play. And blitzing, the reward is a sack. You stop them on three downs. But then the risk is I'm leaving my secondary, which is the weakness of the team, in man coverage against at least, in this game, it was 2,000-yard receivers in Metcalf and Lockett. This pass rush, as much as we want to tout, you know, Nick Bosa and Eric Armstead and Ebucom and Kinlaw and Alvis Healthy, this four-man pass rush is not nearly as good as the 2019 team that went to the Super Bowl. The offense is better. I would argue the offense is a lot better. To show how, to see how much D'Amico Ryans is putting five, six, seven people on the line. And sometimes he does drop one out. 
But again, I go back down to if you bring Talano Hufunga down on the line, on the left-hand side of the line, that should be an immediate cue for the quarterback that he's coming. And if I'm running towards him, I would check to run to the other side. Or I would throw a quick pass on that side. Since he's a safety, he'll be coming, he'll be blitzing. He's going to be out of the play in terms of coverage or making a tackle. It's If it's obvious to me, it should be obvious to people that are smarter than me. NFL coaches, defensive coordinators, defensive assistants. I would just like to see a 49er defensive game where let's tout that they have a good front four, front six, front seven, and play it, but playing coverage. Now, I'm not going to go back and watch every game and say that they have the number one or two, the number one defense overall because of the pressure they're putting on. It does not feel that way at all. And I'm not going to go back and look at the at each game's rushing stats and try to figure out oh, are the rushing stats because they're stacking the line with seven players or six players on the line and another two linebackers and a safety up, or is it because they have a strong defensive line and strong linebackers you can play a six or seven man box and play coverage behind it? As they move farther into the playoffs, Dallas can throw the ball. If they can get past Dallas, and it's the Eagles. The Eagles have weapons. Devontae Smith. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the receiver they traded from the Titans. Uh, they have a good tight end. They're going to need help. They can't expect their linebackers, corners, and safeties to cover um, uh, A.J. Brown or something close to that. That was the receiver that the, the Eagles tight, uh, traded for. Maybe you can get away with it with the Giants. They don't have many receiving threats, but they are mixing it up nice on offense. And we'll get into that in the plus section. The one thing I actually did notice too, before we kind of get into the rest of the game is for those of you that, that have played Madden football in the past. And and even if you haven't played Madden football, you probably would know what this means. Watching football in general. And I watch more Niner games than I do anything else. Where has the dime defense gone? Seattle came out and spread the field quite a bit. So they had five offensive linemen, Geno, that's six players, and five five players at receiver, whether it was three receivers, a, a running back and a tight end, or four receivers and a, and a tight end. A dime defense is four defensive linemen, one linebacker, four cornerbacks, and two safeties. San Francisco does not come out of their nickel look ever. I mean, if, if they do, it's 5% of the time. But they're always playing four linemen. They'll play Warner and Greenlaw at, at linebacker. They'll play Ward and Diamador Lenore at corner and Jimmy Ward at nickelback. So basically what I'm saying is they don't match up with corners, with four cornerbacks, if you put four wide receivers on the field. Hufanga certainly can't cover him, can't cover a receiver. Tayshawn Gibson, I wouldn't want on a receiver. Greenlaw and Warner, while good coverage linebackers, I want them covering a non-Christian McCaffrey-like running back or a tight end. But your corners are your most agile and quick and fast players on your defense. They're, when teams go five wide, San Francisco stays in that nickel or four, four wide. Or empty backfield, let's say. Empty backfield, four or five players that can catch the ball. Tight end, receiver, running back. And they seem to just play zone. I think that's why a team like the Chiefs carve them up. I think that's why a team like the Bills, should they meet in the Super Bowl, can carve them up. Because San Francisco's personnel 
does not match up with the offensive personnel. You cannot keep a linebacker playing zone against receivers or two linebackers playing zone against receivers for most of the game and give a top three, top five quarterback time to carve you up. May not be a huge issue this week. I mean, Dallas has, we're going to get into it, has receiving options. But beyond CeeDee Lamb, they are not super devastating options. And Dak is prone to turning the ball over. But getting back to the game, after the bomb touchdown um, to DK Metcalf to make it 14-13, later on in the second quarter, San Francisco drives down the field, makes it 16-14 to with 13 seconds left, and makes the mistake and Kyle Shanahan admitted this after the game, about a squib kick. Now, the squib kick, in theory, is not a bad thing. But if you're going to squib kick it, kick it hard. It was a weak squib kick that only got down to about the 25-yard line. If you want to guarantee a non-return, squib kick the hell out of it, even if it gets back to the returner near the goal line or the 5-yard line. It's still a bouncing ball. There could be a fumble. You just can't give a pooch squib kick. Um, and then Se- Seattle wound up getting the ball at the 38-yard line. I understand Robbie Gold wasn't getting the ball deep into the end zone. And Wisnowski, the punter, isn't doing kickoffs anymore. So you couldn't guarantee a touchback. But you could have guaranteed a bouncing ball that was harder to handle than what Gold put into play. Then after that, there was you know like eight seconds to go. Geno Smith scrambles, slides at midfield, and Jimmy Ward with a beyond stupid spearing of Geno Smith that gets a personal foul and puts them into field goal position. I had to do a double take. Usually, uh, who the foul was on, usually the stupid plays come from Dre Greenlaw. Jimmy Ward knows better than that. And listen, I know there's this big machismo, run fast, hit hard philosophy when it comes to football, but when you see a quarterback running, even if it's Josh Allen who's built like a linebacker, that per like Geno Smith is gonna slide. Brock Purdy is gonna slide. Dak's probably gonna slide. You don't need to go in to try to blow him up because as you are going down, they're sliding and you're gonna get a flag. Just stay up and tackle. You're a bigger person generally than these quarterbacks. I mean, maybe Dak Prescott um or maybe Geno Smith has five or ten pounds on Jimmy Ward. Is that gonna knock Jimmy Ward out? Just wrap him up. And if he winds up sliding, then you just jump over him. Ta- you actually don't even need to tag him if he slides. And you're okay. Enough with this running like a wild friggin' maniac at the quarterback. And then when they slide, you're going down as well. You don't need to put a hit on someone every time. Someone's running out of bounds. You don't need to hit them and potentially draw um, a personal foul or a flag for a late hit out of bounds. Use your head, guys. This is, a, you know... Football is a fast and violent game, but playing disciplined and under control, that that cost them three points. Uh, the field goal kicker uh, makes it from 56 yards. DK Metcalf, receiver, and Pete Carroll, the head coach, are going nuts on the sideline at the break because they're up 17-16. to 16. Fortunate that that kick didn't come back to bite San Francisco. Halftime, I don't know, you know what was said at least on the... So, San Francisco scores on its first drive, but they wound up scoring on... um, Well, actually, let me take a step back. San Francisco didn't play poorly in the first half. They didn't play smart to me. Again, you don't need to blitz and play man up, and Jimmy Ward, don't be stupid. In the first half, San Francisco scored on four of their five drives. That's pretty good. 
They had three field goal drives and one touchdown drive. You need to convert at least one of those into a touchdown. I'm not, I'm not saying that this team should be scoring 50 points a game. Field goals are good, but it goes to show when you have, when you're trading field goals for touchdowns against certain teams, that's not going to cut it. Now in the second half, San Francisco scored on all four of their drives. Touchdown, 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 field goal. And actually their last drive is when they got the ball back and just ran out the clock. They scored the next 25 points of the game. And the first drive is where Debo Samuel picks up a first down on third down, got tackled and got his ankle twisted by Jonathan Abraham on the Seahawks. And apparently reading stuff after the game, Debo had to come out for one play and then came back in. That apparently pissed the team off. I saw Kyle Shanahan on the sideline, mouthing that was bullshit. Um, a couple more plays later in the drive, Brock scores. Brock Purdy scores on a one-yard TD sneak to go up 23-17. to 17. The next drive was really the, the play of the game or the game that cemented, the, the play that cemented the game for the Niners. Seattle responded again. They drive down to the San Francisco 19. Charles Amenahu has a strip sack on Geno Smith recovered by Nick Bosa. And then the Niners just kind of laid it on. They had a drive of seven plays, 78 yards, three minutes and 23 seconds. Touchdown, seven-yard touchdown pass to Eli Mitchell. Next drive, two plays, 76 yards, took 54 seconds. 74-yard, essentially a, a screen pass to Debo. And then their last scoring drive was a field goal to make it 41-17. to 17. So that's 25 straight points. So on offense, let's, you know, kind of just go through um, some records and just some observations. So Brock Purdy becomes the youngest quarterback to throw for 300 or more yards in a playoff game. He beat or became younger than, if you want to call it that, Dan Marino, which is his idol growing up and which is the reason why he wears number 13. He has thrown, Brock Purdy has thrown a touchdown in seven straight games, which ties Steve Young. And he, with the, if he throws a touchdown against the Cowboys, he will then be tied with Jeff Garcia, who has the 49ers all-time record with a touchdown in eight straight games. Now, Eli Mitchell's nine rushes for two yards, I said before, was a bit puzzling. It's beyond surprising. I mean, it could just be bad luck that on those plays that, that Mitchell came in, Seattle could have been stacking the box. They could have, could have been guessing run right. It could have been bad run blocking by the 49ers offensive line. He's going to need to do more. I think counting on McCaffrey to rush for 100 yards every game isn't a guarantee, obviously. But if we can have some sort of split where McCaffrey runs for 70 yards and Mitchell runs between 40 and 50, I think that's a nice two-headed monster type of balance. And Brandon Ayuk, even though, even though he only had three receptions, those deep crossing patterns have been wide open. And Purdy's been very accurate to him on that. And they probably run it more during the game than they're connecting on. And I'm sure there's some plays where the defense is taking it away. Um, but that seems to be Ayuk's signature route. Now, defense, not a lot to complain about in the second half. But this is, I'm just going to go back to, to cornerbacks and just something that I'm seeing and I'm, I'm just wondering why. So 49er corners either play on the line of scrimmage and are playing bump and run or pressing the receiver, or they're playing seven to eight yards up. There is no in between. I'll be watching against Dallas and, and watch. They do this now 50% of the time, but where are the alignments where the corners are two to three yards off the ball? Hell even say four yards off the ball. 
I'm sure people out there that are watching games have noticed, you know, sometimes it's a third down and 10 and the cornerbacks are giving eight yards of cushion. I get, you know, sometimes you want to, you want to play the sticks. You want to keep everything in front of you, force a short throw, make a tackle. But then there've been times where it's third and five and the corners are playing seven or eight yards off. I don't understand how that makes sense. They're not protecting their cornerbacks with safeties deep because San Francisco doesn't really do that as much as I would like. But I would like to see a, a little bit more balance or consistency in terms of where the cornerbacks line up. Again, I'm not a defensive coordinator. I'm sure there's very smart reasons why D'Amico Ryans and the corners are lining up the way they are. It just seems to be an all-or-nothing situation. And again, we just they just need to back off stacking the line and blitzing so much. Again, no matter how much of a 49er homer you are, this defensive line, think about the names. This year, Bosa, Armstead, Kinlaw when healthy, Samson, Ebukamer, your starting four. 2019 was Bosa, Armstead, DeForest Buckner, and D. Ford when he was healthy. D. Ford, a healthy D. Ford in the Super Bowl and playoffs is better than Samson, Ebukam, and DeForest Buckner is a lot better than Javon Kinlaw in run defense and pushing the pocket. Um, Bosa is Bosa. He's grown since rookie year and Armstead has been pretty consistent throughout his year. So I get it. It's not the same four man D line, but it is a deeper D line than it was in 2019 by far. So I think there just needs to be an understanding. I think D'Amico Ryan has the understanding that yes, our front four is strong. We can generate pressure, but it is not the super elite unit that it was in 2019. So if he's trying to figure out ways to generate more sacks, force a quarterback into a bad situation or turnover, I get it. You can be blitzing, but you can maybe blitz a linebacker somewhere, stunt him or up the middle, but not show it and still play coverage. It just seems too obvious. And it's not going to stop. I think it slows down once they get beaten. But is that really the philosophy? We're going to do this until you beat us? Because they're, again, risk-reward. It seems like the risk mathematically over the course of a season is not worth the reward. And oh, by the way, when Charles Amenahu got the strip sack on Geno Smith, that was a four-man pass rush. And oh, by the way, when Diamador Lenore stepped in front of a Geno Smith pass and got an interception, that was a four-man pass rush. They, I'm not, listen, those are two examples. And you can give me a lot of examples. You can give me examples where they have gotten a sack on a blitz or gotten an interception. I get it. I just don't believe... With a defense that has this much talent, this many playmakers at every level, D-line, linebackers, Hufunga is a playmaker, Ward is a playmaker, Tayshawn Gibson at safety is a playmaker, he leads the team in interceptions with five. You have talented playmakers that you should give a chance to make plays, and generally these playmakers make plays when they have more, when there are more people in coverage to support each other, not when they are on an island because Ryan's is deciding to blitz six or seven. Armchair coaching, I get it, but I've watched every single game and San Francisco more, way more often than not gets burned when they play this obvious blitz stack the line man up formation. So based on last night's disgusting Monday night game, we know that the 49ers are playing the Dallas Cowboys, and it's going to be the 6:30 game on Sunday, the last game of the divisional weekend. Dallas beat Tampa Bay 31 to 14. 
it wasn't really that close. Now, the Cowboys and the 49ers are the only two teams to cover their respective spreads on Super Wild Card Weekend. The Chargers were a favorite. They lost. The Vikings were a favorite. They lost. The Buffalo Bills were a favorite by 13, which I bet on, <laughs> and they won by three. Thank, how did they not blow out Skylar Thompson and that team? I, I still didn't understand. So Dallas was a two and a half point, three point favorite. They covered. The Niners were a 10 point favorite. They covered. Dallas's defense overwhelmed Tampa, and the offense moved the ball well. They had a nine minute time of possession advantage over Tampa Bay. Rushing the ball, like they, they, created the formula, and this isn't the reason why they won, but I just like the balance. I think I said last week or to a friend that Dallas doesn't understand that if they run the ball 15 times to each running back, that they have a good chance of winning the game. Well, Tony Pollard ran 15 times for 77 yards, and Ezekiel Elliott ran 13 times for 27 yards. Again, not a great average, but that's it's volume that matters. They ran the ball 28 times combined. Dak contributed 7 for 24 and a touchdown. So 35 rushes by the Cowboys. They are, their offense starts with the run and is complemented by Dak and the passing game. Receiving, tight end Dalton Schultz went 7 for 95 and two touchdowns. CeeDee Lamb, 4 for 68 and a touchdown, but they also have some nice wide receiver options. Michael Gallup, who's still coming off of a torn ACL from last year, and they picked up former Colts receiver T.Y. Hilton, who had a couple receptions. Now, overall stats on the season for the Cowboys. Offensively, they're the number 11 offense, 14th passing, 9 rushing, and 4th in points scored, averaging 27.5 points a game. Defensively, they're 12th overall, 8th passing, 22nd rushing, and 5th points allowed. They're allowing 20.1. Now, that game looked really good. I, I picked Tampa Bay. I was picking. I, I was picking with my heart and my head. I thought Tampa Bay would win. I thought Brady would find a way. I thought the Cowboys would find a way to choke. I wasn't buying in that whole Dallas hasn't won a road game since 19, playoff game since 1993. None of that matters. I just figured the way they looked against the commanders last week of the season, Tampa has a decent enough deep defense and that just, you know, Tom Brady finds a way. Did not happen. And yes, they looked good. And I can't wait if you could hear the sarcasm in my voice, to hear all of the pundits today, tomorrow, the rest of the week, saying how good Dallas looks and they're prime for the upset and, and they're the team that could beat San Francisco. Yeah, they, they can. They have a good team. They won 12 games. They were 12-5 and five for a reason. But this is what I call Dallas Cowboys star bias, the star in their helmet. Again, it's like Micah Parsons, very good player, but people go nuts for him because he's a Cowboy. Dak, Dak Prescott, people talk about him a lot because he's a cowboy versus actually looking at the stats. Now, this is immediate bias, and this is what the world is, 24-hour news cycles. Dallas looked really good. Uh, they're they're, they're going to go to the Super Bowl. Slow down. One game. Dallas's last five regular season games, they were 3-2. and two. They struggled mightily at home against Houston and won on the last drive of the game, 27-23. to They go to Jacksonville. Okay, the Jaguars are a playoff team. They lose in overtime, 40-34. to They go to Philadelphia. Okay, Philadelphia's the number one seed in the NFC. They win 40-34. to Jalen Hurts did not play. They go on a Thursday night game to Tennessee, who basically sat everybody under the sun because the game didn't matter to them. They struggled in the first half and essentially the first two and a half quarters, but they won that game 27-13. to And last week... 
when the number one seed in the division was still in play, they go to Washington and get thumped 26-6. to So yes, they had a good game against a Tampa Bay team that is 8-9 and nine for a reason that has struggled offensively all year for a reason. Actually, I don't even know what the reason is. They shouldn't be struggling. That can't run the ball at all. In Dallas's five losses... They have allowed 152 rushing yards, 136, 207, 192, and 151. And teams have averaged during those five games 34.6 rushes per game. Rush, running the ball. Now, that's San Francisco, something that San Francisco likes to do. And I think they can get to the 30 mark. This isn't about slowing down Dallas and how explosive Dallas's offense is. Yeah, I... I guess that's a factor in some capacity, but it's attacking a weakness. Dallas's defense, Dallas is a better pass defense, their eighth, than run defense, their 22nd. I think this plays into what San Francisco wants to do, but again, they need to get more production out of Eli Mitchell than they did nine rushes for two yards, and that should be an anomaly. And like, you know, regression to the mean. I think McCaffrey can maybe run for between 70 and 80 yards. If Mitchell runs for between 40 and, and 60 yards, I think they're going to be in good shape. Debo may be getting, you know, a handoff or two. Could be check could be Jordan Mason. I don't know. I mean, now looking at turnovers, these are the top two teams in turnover differential. San Francisco is plus 13. Dallas is plus 10. Dak Prescott, we talked about 15 interceptions during the regular season. That led the NFL but they take the ball away a lot. So San Francisco has to play smart and protect the ball. Keys to winning this game. Slow, number one, slow down the pass rush. Running the ball can do that. Yes, they have Micah Parsons, but they also have other players that can get to the quarterback. San, uh, the Cowboys have 54 sacks during the regular season. San Francisco, 44. It's a pretty decent difference. Minimize the big plays, both on rushing and and passing. How do we do it passing? Stop stacking the line. They have a number one, number two run defense for a reason. You know, stop Tony Pollard from getting outside or taking a swing pass 30 or 40 yards. They have the line. I don't think they I don't think the linebackers can run with him, just like no linebacker on Dallas can run with Christian McCaffrey. Minimize the big plays. Make Dallas earn every yard, every drive, every score. Don't hand them anything by being out of position, by having a Talanoa Hufunga coverage breakdown, or by having a D'Amico Ryan's let's blitz everybody on the roster special. Play 49er football. Run the ball. Run the ball 25 to 30 times. Play smart. Be efficient. Don't force anything. You have They have the talent on both sides. They have a, more talent on both sides of the ball than Dallas does. Is it a huge gap? No. Dallas is one of the top three talented teams in the NFC. Dallas, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. Dallas can win this game. I'm not saying, you know, the line is four. I think San Francisco's favored by four, four and a half. It feels about right. That's saying that the teams are about even. I think there's still some Brock Purdy doubting that's going on. That, you know, can he do it against this type of defense? Can he do it against this type of pass rush? This type of opportunistic defense? There may be turnovers. Dallas may force Purdy into a turnover. He's got to bounce back. And he's thrown interceptions before. It's not like he's he's got a perfect win-loss record, but he's thrown picks, and he's bounced back well. No idea how the weather's going to be. Um, six days out, you don't even look at the forecast. It's, it's not going to matter. 
Um, but a, a great showdown. Was I rooting for Tampa? Yes. Was I rooting for Minnesota? Yes. Dallas is the team because they are built similarly to San Francisco. They have a strong defensive line. They have a good pass rush. And they actually have the better secondary than San Francisco does. If the 49ers can take the run away and force Dak Prescott to beat them, they'll win the game. I mentioned CeeDee Lamb. He's their number one threat. I guess Dalton Schultz would be number two. Michael Gallup, T.Y. Hilton. Um, Dallas actually plays three uh, tight ends deep. The other two aren't great tight ends, but they roll out more tight ends as part of, of their offensive arsenal than San Francisco does. All that being said, I think, again, the keys, slow down the rush, minimize big plays, pay 49er football, and be smart, smart and efficient. Don't get cute, Shanahan. Don't get, don't go away from what got you to be a 13-4 and four team. And Ryan's, go away a little bit from what you've been doing, but don't go away too much from what, became, what got you to become the number one defense. But I want to see a little bit more bend, but don't break. All that being said, I think San Francisco wins this game close, 27 224. So I'll be releasing the plus section tomorrow on Wednesday, January 18th. So please come back as we discuss how Netflix rates their shows and what they decide to keep and cancel. We're going to talk about streaming TV consolidation, video game console stuff from the past year, and breaking down the other three divisional games in the NFL playoffs. Uh, Stick around, come back, more to discuss. It's plus time. Welcome back. And starting off the plus section, just wanted to discuss Netflix a bit and their run of cancellations of shows the past year plus that has a large number or I don't say large, a good number of subscribers pissed off to the point that they're canceling their Netflix subscriptions. I'm going to read off some shows that have been canceled. This is a small sampling. They're just shows that I'm familiar with that um, I knew I either watched or I recognize the name or I know what it's about. This is by no means a full list of what Netflix has canceled. But going back to just last year, 2022, they've been canceling shows after just one or two seasons. And it's a difficult thing because of the amount of money that Netflix has, and they are profitable. And getting customers or viewers invested in the story and then ending it before they, you know, the writers, the showrunners, could complete the story. And who knows if these are three, four, five episode types of things. But last year, to 2022, Netflix only gave one season to um, some fantasy horror shows. So Archive 81, Resident Evil, The Imperfects. Um, the Midnight Club was an interesting show. It dealt with um, individuals who were dying in hospice that were living together and they were telling um, scary stories to pass the time. And after two seasons, these shows got canceled. So a fantasy fairy tale-ish type show called Fate, the Winx Saga, Another Life was sci-fi, The Babysitter's Club was a reboot of the late 80s movie starring Elizabeth Shue, Space Force was um, like a NASA type comedy starring Steve Carell, Raising Dion um, was a story about a young child who had superpowers. And Warrior Nun 
is essentially just that, all canceled before the end of last year. This year, we're only 18 days into the year, or the cancellations might have been, you know, mentioned in December, but only one season for the following show. So a comedy called Blockbuster, which was supposed to take place in a Blockbuster video store in the 90s, a show that I was looking forward to watching, 1899, which was um, a drama suspense show that deals with people on an ocean liner. And this was created by the people that made the show Dark on Netflix, which was a three-season German-produced show, although there was um, the American dubbed voiceover afterwards that dealt with time travel that was really well done. And I was looking forward to this. It was canceled. I still may watch it just to see how that first season went, but I also don't want to get aggravated that I watched it, I liked it, and now there's there's no more of it. Um, the Irregulars is another kind of fantasy-type show, like a very soft X-Men type of thing, but it takes place, I think, in, in 1900s London. The Chair was a comedy by starring Sandra Oh about um, academia. Uncoupled, a comedy with Neil Patrick Harris. And Inside Job was an animated show, all canceled. So it ran last year, These shows ran last year, did not do well, got canceled after a year. And there was talk that the fantasy show Sandman, which is based on a DC graphic novel series by, I guess, my favorite author, Neil Gaiman, was on the fence about being renewed. And interestingly enough, the Addams Family show Wednesday, weeks after it debuted, there was discussion whether that was at risk for cancellation or not which is crazy. I mean, Sandman wasn't nearly as popular. The problem with Sandman is is it is an expensive show, and it will be an expensive show to produce season two, but I'm sure Netflix is going to say, hey, however much money you got for season one, we're going to give you less. Wednesday was a bit crazy because of the cultural impact it had. I mean, one, it was a a known commodity of, of the Addams Family. Granted, the movies were in the early 90s. There were two animated movies that came out I mean, granted, the original show was back in, what, the 60s or 70s? Then there was two animated movies that came out in the last five years or so. And the fact that it, but, you know, Jenna Ortega did such a great job. She had that viral dance scene. And the fact that it was going to get canceled was just odd. Both of these shows have been picked up. But that brought to light, you know, people looking into and, and I guess, theorizing what the hell is Netflix's internal rating system for renewing or canceling shows like you know based on broadcast television that it's nielsen ratings it's the number of eyeballs watching a tv show which would correlate then to what you can charge advertisers to see if a a show 30 minutes or an hour long show is going to stick netflix is difficult because people are are paying a flat rate you know 13 dollars a month 19 dollars a month depending on what tier plan you're on And it's hard ultimately to see how well a show is performing, but it seems like based on several articles I've read that Netflix algorithm for if they're going to renew a show or not is based on two things. One, how quickly something is binge watched in completion. And two, how much of the show is completed. So Netflix wants you to watch things quickly and they want you to complete what you're watching quickly. That's not to say that 
they want you to watch everything in a day, although I guess based on their algorithm, that would be ideal. But if you can polish off a 10-episode show in a week or three or four days, and, and of course, the volume of people have to be watching it. I've seen articles before about the number of millions of hours that people have watched Squid Game or Stranger Things or, you know, popular shows. I don't think that's as important of a metric to them because it's it's ratings over time. That could be over three months versus one week, which really shows the the impact that a show is having. But I think the problem about this out the problem I have with this algorithm is to me, Netflix has become the streaming embodiment of people's growing, growing, growingly small attention spans and the instant, immediate ADHD culture that we live in. Now, how do you fix that? Netflix isn't going to change anything. They've become profitable. Well, they've been profitable for a couple years. They are the only profitable streaming service currently in use. Others, if things go right, will become profitable in time. But in terms of this getting people hooked on a show and then canceling it, I don't know how you fix that other than maybe doing an anthology series like an American Horror Story where you can keep the series going but change the, the situation, the time period, the genre, the actors every season. And then you can cancel at any point because one season doesn't build upon the next, right? It's just, it's an anthology. Or can you craft more of a one-and-done series? Whether it's eight episodes, 10, 12. I mean, remember the days, and I guess it's on broadcast TV, where a show like Lost would go for 20, 24 episodes. Now you're lucky if you get 10, at least on a streaming service. And yes, broadcast TV has advertising to supplement the cost of what they're showing. But Netflix is going to a pay and advertising pay tier. Actually, they, they launched it more uh, end of last year. So I don't know if it's going into it, letting people know, hey, this series or this it's not even a series. It's this show is one episode and done. Or if you want to build upon that, you conclude that one season, but you leave it open on a soft cliffhanger that if things go really well with their algorithm and they have the money, you can do another season. Similar to, for those of you that have watched Westworld through their four seasons, I think Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan had an idea that they weren't going to get renewed for season five, and they always had a five-season plan for Westworld. They ended season four in a way that that can end it. And that did end it because it never got renewed. And to me, the where they brought the story, I felt, would I have watched season five? Sure. Story-wise, where they went with the end of season four, there was no need to do a fifth season. People may disagree with me, and that's okay. And like I said, I would watch it, but I'm very... For having it cut short a season, I'm content with how they ended it. Now, for me... So we have in our house Netflix. We have Amazon Prime. We have Disney Plus, because we have two young kids, and because they're Star Wars and superhero stuff for, for me, because I'm a big geek. And we have Apple Plus. To me, of all of those, you know, no one's chasing Netflix anymore. The streaming wars ended before they ever started. Netflix won, and they will continue to win. But they are creating too much content. It's essentially like a shotgun. We're going to throw as much shit against a wall, see what sticks, and then just cancel the stuff that doesn't. 
But they don't have to do that. I mean, they're leading. They're, there are no Joneses that they're trying to keep up with. And everybody else has decided to stop trying to keep up with them, which is crazy when you consider the amount of money that Disney has um, or an Apple. But Netflix is only doing, you know, movies and videos. Apple has other um, industries that they're in, obviously the same for Disney, but that's actually giving, putting more money in the coffers if they wanted to put more into their streaming services. I keep saying this. I don't know how many people agree. Um, and I know a good amount of people disagree, but releasing all episodes at once, I'm not a fan of now. Now one, now that I'm in my forties, can I stay up? If I start a show at eight or nine o'clock at night, once the kids are asleep and watch all eight episodes in a night? Of course not. I couldn't do that if it was a Friday going into a weekend. By the time once I get on a recliner, I'm good for two hours max, and then I fall asleep. It's like throwing a sheet over a birdcage. I'm done. So maybe I'm not the right demographic, but re- dropping everything at once, one, it pisses me off because the next day you see these articles written by millennials that are like, let's talk about that last episode of Wednesday or straight like last episode we didn't like do you have a life like i guess it's your job to watch this stuff all night long and get get through a series but slow down it's like savoring a meal versus eating like garfield and just you know throwing the lasagna in your mouth like an absolute gavon and it's completely led to a give us more give us more give us more like banging your fist on the table mentality among viewers and this has caused netflix to expedite their creating and expedite their spending. And it's a circular effect. By doing this, by creating more things, they're taking a quick look at what's not working, a season one or a season two of something, and canning it because they have other things in the pipeline that they have to create because the audience is always demanding more, more, more. It's in a very American way. Remember like the McMansions of like the the, the 90s and early 200s? the pounding their chest, we want more, you know, Gavon American way of, of kind of doing and viewing things. I'm still a fan, and other streamers, I guess, agree with me for whatever it's worth, of releasing shows weekly. One, for a discussion aspect, you get more on talk radio, you can have your actors and actresses on uh, Good Morning America, Jimmy Kimmel Lot, like, you can... And most shows, the minimum you're really going to see are eight episodes. That's a two-month window. That's a two-month window for ratings, for building your audience, for actually seeing the number of people that are watching it, if they're completing it. I mean, maybe you don't know if they're going to complete it until maybe a month after the last episode ends because people get busy. People have things to do. Discussion. And it gives you two months in however you're building your timelines to create new shows. It adds in a buffer. Netflix doesn't care. No one from Netflix executives is listening to this podcast. And I'm sure a lot of people out there love the binging aspect. And I do too. Remember, TV on demand started with our local cable providers. They had their, you know, HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, um, eight Encore Stars. Even NBC, Fox, whatever, they had their shows on demand that you could watch any time. But remember, you could also binge those shows, binge a trilogy of movies anytime you want. Netflix became the uber-American gluttonized version of it of, here's your 10 episodes of Stranger Things or Wednesday or 
Arcane, and that was a show, uh, I'm going to talk about that on another podcast, an animated show based on a video game that I absolutely love that is getting a second season. Fortunately, again, just my opinion, but there is a lot of stuff, people out there, on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney, Peacock, Paramount Plus, what Apple Plus, there's stuff, HBO Max, that you can binge whenever you want. If you never watched Deadwood, check it out. If you never watched Rome on HBO or Sex in the City, Six Feet Under, what you can binge the crap out of, I don't want to say historic, but shows that have been around for years or decades that you meant might not have gotten around to. Why do new shows have to be treated the same way? And I don't think they do. And guess what? Neither does Disney Plus or the other streamers. Disney has a shit ton of money, almost bottomless, much like much like Apple. They produce less content than Netflix. Now, they've grown their library, like Avatar is part of Disney now, The Simpsons. There's, there's other shows, and I can't name them off, off the top of my head as I'm trying to talk and look at my notes. But they've they've acquired things that are not Disney things. So there's a they have a lot more content now than they did when they launched two years ago. But they create and produce less, less significantly less content than Netflix. But their strategy is they generally don't release something. We'll call it major. Like I'm not going to say a um, a nature biography or something about like whales and aquatic life. Like that stuff kind of can come out. Whenever, or if they're going to do release like a, a direct to DV movie like um, Disenchanted, the sequel to Enchanted, that's going to come out whatever. They're not going to wait for a gap in show releases to release movies. But all of the think back to the Marvel shows, you know, WandaVision came out first. Once that was done, a couple weeks went by. Then I think Captain America and the Winter Soldier was next. Then a couple weeks went by. Then Loki came out. They're doing it the same now with um, Willow ended. That was, I think, eight or nine episodes. I think the last episode of Willow, the first two episodes of the Star Wars animated show, The Bad Batch, happened. But essentially, like, there's really no major overlap. Once The Bad Batch ends, The Mandalorian season three is going to start in March. And if there's other Marvel shows coming out, or I know there's other Star Wars shows that are happening, but... Andor didn't come out the same time as Willow. And so I think they have a good approach and they're not, they're not assuming that their Willow audience is their star Wars audience is their avatar Simpsons, you know, Disney proper type of thing. I think they realize that there's a way to get people coming back to Disney plus. I think the release days are Wednesday mainly Sometimes it was Thursday or Friday for some things, but to get people coming back for a Wednesday or a Friday, remember now, like releasing something on a Friday, like Friday night has always been like the worst night to release anything, sporting events, TV shows. It doesn't matter now because things release at midnight. So if you wake up and you're working from home and you want to watch Bad Batch at nine in the morning, you can, or Mandalorian, whatever it's going to release. So I think that's the right approach. Now, <laughs> Disney Plus lost $4 billion last year. I still think it's the right approach. No matter what Disney did, they were going to lose money. They will not become profitable until 2024. Executives are okay with that. And again, all that being said, now Netflix had a rough mid-2022 where they lost about 1.5 million subscribers, but then bounced back in the second half where they picked up about 2.4 million. So they're a net million higher 
in 2022 than they were in 2021. They have 223 million subscribers worldwide. And like I mentioned, as ways to generate more revenue, they introduced a $6.99 basic ad-supported plan. So if you're watching half-hour show, you only see a certain number of, of minutes of ads versus an hour or a movie. Actually, I don't even know how it works in a movie. I guess you see the ads beforehand. Um, so they're thinking of new ways, and, and that's not to say that that a Disney or an Amazon or Paramount isn't gonna isn't gonna go this route if they if they haven't already. I'm not a hundred percent knowledgeable. But what this may lead to, just to transition, is there's some people predicting that there's gonna be streaming consolidation in the future. And it's happened already. And I think most of us are aware that last year Warner well, the first thing that Warner Brothers Discovery, Warner Brothers did was they merged with Discovery. Then they shut down CNN Plus after a month. I mean, to me, I guess there are people out there that are really into the news. I'm not. But to have like a streaming news service when there's more than enough news to go around on cable television and local television, it it didn't seem smart to begin with. Then Warner Brothers Discovery acquired HBO Max. They merged their Discovery Plus with HBO Max. And that's where the killing of things like sci-fi show raised by wolves and Westworld. Um, they took out some animated movies and shows Sesame, some episodes of Sesame street from the HBO max calendar or catalog rather. And I think they're, um, the new name is I think going to be max once they officially, um, finish the merger and they're creating a new, uh, free platform where shows like maybe a West. So Westworld is gone from the service. Not only do they cancel season five, it's gone. You can't watch Westworld and HBO Max anymore. Same with Raised by Wolves, same by other shows. But they're going to be creating a free, and they stress the word free, streaming platform where, um, I can't think of another word other than historic, but dec- uh, recent or decades old HBO or even Discovery shows that they've pulled off because of royalties, etc., are going to go to their free streaming platform. And that's almost going to be a way, to, it's it's an interesting way of thinking, although in some ways a little bit backwards, it doesn't sound like what's what's going to be on the free streaming platform will cross over and also be on HBO Max or Max, whatever it's going to be called in the future. So what they want to do is wet people's appetite with the free platform and get them to pay for Max. But if you're showing them stuff on free that's not on Max, is that going to disappoint people? I, again, I'd like to think smarter people than me are figuring this stuff out, and, and I'm sure there are. But that's that's the plan. And Warner Brothers Discovery is not done. They might merge with NBC Universal next year in 2024. They cannot do it this year because of the merger with HBO. They, I guess you need a year buffer doing that. Whatever. There's now there's already consolidations and bundles. I mean, Disney owns Hulu and ESPN, but there is a Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus bundle. But everybody else that's remaining, some industry experts, even though there are major hurdles to consolidation, the major players out there being Amazon Prime Video, Apple Plus. I I don't think Disney Plus is ever going to merge. They're going to do their own thing. Um, I mean, they already bought Fox. HBO Max slash Discovery, Netflix, Paramount Plus, Peacock for NBC. Who knows what things are going to look like in the coming years? But what we do know is... The streaming, the war is over. Netflix won. Everybody, the land grab is over. Now everybody's just trying to figure out how to get other pieces of the pie. And you saw something like Top Gun Maverick 
is, I don't know if it's exclu- if it'll always be exclusive, but it's on Paramount Plus. So if you want to watch that, I mean, technically all you have to do is the, the free trial of Paramount Plus for 30 days, you can watch that movie. Um, or they may lock something like that out unless you pay $5 a month for it. But we may see smaller, we just may see combined streaming services in the future. If that's good or bad for consumers, I don't know. If it means prices going up, then I guess that's no, because content is content. is content. People are just going to go with where they feel like they're getting the most that they can see that um, appeals to their interests. And lastly, before we get into our divisional picks segment, I found something interesting actually on Reddit about video game console usage last year. So that made me go back and just to flesh out this section so it's not a a 30-second section. So video game consoles in 2022, I want to start off by, you know, sales. So what were the highest selling consoles? Now, now gaming PCs are out of this because it's hard to pinpoint an exact number because you can buy a gaming PC and there's multiple brand, but you can go HP, you can go Dell, um, you can go Lenovo, you can go Alienware. Like there's a bunch of brands. So it's hard to really parse that out and combine it even because you can buy a regular computer and then juice it up to be a gaming computer. So these are just solely consoles. So for last year, Nintendo Switch was far and away the highest selling video game console, selling 12.3 million units. Second was PS5, and they're still hard to find. They've been hard to find since launch in 2020 or 2021. 7.4 million sold last year, followed by Xbox Series X and S. And for those of you that aren't familiar, Xbox released two different types of consoles, the X and the S. And I might get this confused. Basically, one con- one version, the X or the S, is more powerful than the other. I don't know if that means the more powerful version can play games that the less powerful version can't. Regardless, combined, that Xbox sold 6.2 million units of those consoles. PS4, still in development in 2022, no longer this year, sold 431,000 units. And Xbox One sold 36,000 units. Now, what I found that I thought really was interesting is this next section of info that I want to share. So I found on Reddit a survey. So I think it was an online video game site or subscription magazine, whatever it may be, but it was a survey of, so it was of gamers at least. It was the right population of the most played, the top 10 most played platforms. So from one to 10, one was PC, personal computer. Um, Two was PS4. Three was Switch. Fourth place was PS5. Next was Xbox One. Sixth place was PlayStation 3. And that hasn't had games released for it in about seven or eight years. Um, Same, I guess, with Xbox One. Even though it's a little bit more recent. Xbox Series X and and S is next. Xbox 360, which is the main competitor to PS3, is eighth. Nintendo 3DS, which is essentially a handheld Nintendo system, which I have was ninth and PlayStation 2, which lost, launched in 2001, is 10th. So that was interesting to me, and, and mainly because I saw that PS3 was right in the middle of the mix. They were It was 6th, and I own a PlayStation. I was never an Xbox person. I was always Nintendo and then PlayStation. I had a PS1, PS2, PS3. My original PS3 that I bought, I guess, in 2006 or 2007 uh, wound up breaking. I tried to fix it, went on YouTube, went on Reddit, was asking for help, wound up actually 
taking it all apart, cleaning it out, purchased on eBay a new um, lens to read the Blu-ray. That worked for like a day and then crapped out. So I wound up getting rid of that and wound up going to um, a used game video store about a half hour from where I live and wound up picking up a new PS3, or uh, not new, a used PS3, but a newer version for about 120 And, you know, I still have games on there that I like to play. You know, I have the last um, Madden game. It's either Madden 16 or 17 that I'll play with my kids. There's a Ghostbusters game, a FIFA game, Bioshock Infinite I like a lot. Um, It is still, I mean, not just because I like it, but it is still a highly regarded um, console and platform given the fact that it's at least 15 years old. So that actually led me to another thing that I found on social about the top 10 retro games that are being played last year in 2022. Now, these are games that are at least 20 years old, and this is ranked from 1 to 10. So first, Final Fantasy VII, which came out in 1997. Half-Life came out in 98. Grand Theft Auto Vice City came out in 2002. Chrono Trigger, 95. Super Mario Brothers, Nintendo, 1985. Final Fantasy 1, Nintendo, 1987. Super Mario 64 in 96. Devil May Cry, 2001. Donkey Kong Country, another Super Nintendo game, along with Chrono Trigger, that came out in 94. Metal Gear Solid, PlayStation 1, was 1998. So of those 10 games, one of the two of them were PS1 game, three of them were PlayStation 2 games, Two of them were Super NES games, which is still my favorite system of all time. Two Nintendo games and one Nintendo 64 game. It was interesting to see that the, the top played game, and I'm sure it's a really good game. The top retro game was Final Fantasy VII. So that came out for PlayStation 1 in 1997. It's my freshman year in college. I still remember this. So I heard, like, there was big buzz about this game. It's, so the thing is, it's a role-playing game. So it's not like a Zelda where you're walking around, hacking and slashing at things. You, you still walk around, but then once when you're engaging enemies, a screen pops up and you have your guy, static, and if there's four enemies that are going to fight you, they're kind of static too. And you take turns attacking each other, but you don't use your joy, like you don't move near them to attack. A drop screen will come down and it'll say, do you want to attack? Do you want to defend? Do you want to use magic? You know, and which person do you want to attack? Those are considered role-playing games. I'm I'm just not a big fan of that, but I thought, hey, you know, Final Fantasy VII, big deal. Want to try, you know, getting a lot of good reviews. So I remember walking down, for anybody from Scranton, University of Scranton that I went to college with is listening to this, walking down to the Steamtown Mall, I don't remember if the store was a Babbage's or an electronics boutique or a GameStop or whatever it was, bought it for PlayStation one came with a free t-shirt. Now I, I kept that t-shirt for probably 10 or more years. Like that was a, that was a well-made t-shirt and I barely played the game, tried it. Couldn't again, couldn't get into the whole, um, role-playing game aspect of it but I wore the crap out of the shirt and I'd have to have conversations with people like, Oh, you like final fantasy seven. I'm like, no, but I like the shirt. Like it was, I'll wear something that's free as long as it's not really obnoxious looking. Um, so that was just something cool that I wanted to share. And I just wanted to cap this off with, so the top 10 all time, uh, consoles in terms of sales all time, we're going to go from 10 up to one. 
So PlayStation Portable, which was rather ill-fated, but that still sold 82 million units. Xbox 360 is ninth, sold 85 million units. PS3 is next, 87.5 million units. Nintendo Wii, 101.6 million. PlayStation 1, 102.4 million. Nintendo Switch, now this number is going to keep growing because it's still out there, 114.3 million units. It's been out for maybe five years. PlayStation 4, 117.2 million. Game Boy, the original plus Game Boy Color, 118.7 million. Nintendo DS, so their original handheld, which was, I guess, the sequel to both Game Boy and then Game Boy Advance, which I have because I'm a dork, 154 million units. And the number one all-time selling unit, PlayStation 2, 159 million. So over time, Switch is in one, two, three, four, fifth place right now. It's going to wind up becoming the third best-selling unit ever. Again, it's at 114.3. It has to just get over 118.7 to beat Game Boy, and it'll, it'll do it in the first half of this year. So more than some of you maybe wanted to know about you know video games, sales, and, and stuff like that, but like I said, once I saw you know the, the most played platforms of last year and a lot, more than half, well more, like 80% were you know, pl- uh, platforms or consoles that came out more than five or seven years ago just goes to show the, you know, either the system's well-made or the nostalgia that people have for things that they were playing either when they were growing up or five or 10 years ago that they keep in good condition that they want to keep playing. So let's wrap up the podcast making divisional round picks. Last week, I got two games wrong. Uh, I took the Bucks over the Cowboys which looks really bad, and I took Minnesota over the Giants. I went with all six home teams, four wins, two losses. Took the Niners over Dallas. That is the last game on Sunday. So let's start off with the first game on Saturday, Jacksonville at Kansas City, Saturday at 4.30 on NBC. So the Jags had that big 27 to nothing comeback against the Chargers, mainly because the Chargers can't and or refuse to run the football and eat up clock. As bad as Jaguars quarterback Trevor Lawrence looked in the first half throwing four interceptions, he looked even, (laughs) he looked the opposite of that and super good in the second half throwing for four touchdowns, but they still ran the ball 21 times for 117 yards. They did not go bombs away. Yes, Lawrence threw four touchdowns, but they still had a commitment to running the ball with Lawrence and Travis Etienne. Jacksonville has weapons between at receiver Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, Marvin Jones, Evan Ingram at tight end, and Travis Etienne at running back. They are a top 10 offense, more or less across the board. But now they're stepping up their competition from one AFCS foe to another, and it's the Chiefs who are the number one seed. They had a week off. Statistically, during the regular season, they are the number one offense, number one pass offense, number 20 rush offense, number one in points scored, averaging 29.2 a game. Defensively, overall, they're 11th, 18th against the pass, 8th against the rush, and 16th in points allowed, averaging 21.7. Defensively with the Chiefs, there are opportunities for Jacksonville. Now, the rush defense is eighth, 
But I think a lot of that, or some of that, has to do with the fact that, again, they get up on teams early, teams abandon the run, and that's why teams are accumulating passing yards and their pass defense is 18th. So their pass defense probably isn't as bad as their ranking, and their rush defense probably isn't as good as their ranking, just given the nature of how the Chiefs try to make every game attract me and not many teams can keep up with them. The Jaguars have the talent to. They are just a very young team. Christian Kirk, I think, is in his fifth year. Trevor Lawrence and ETN are in their second years. Zay Jones is relatively young. Evan Ingram is on his second team, but he's still relatively young. And this Jacksonville team arrived at least a year early, going 9-8, and eight, winning the AFC South, getting a home playoff game, making a big comeback, coming off of the horrendous Urban Meyer experience last year. Doug Peterson, new head coach in his first year. You know, something like this in terms of a divisional round in Kansas City type of game can go either way. You can say, well, they're so young, they don't know any better, they're just going to let it all hang out. What do they have to lose? Or is the moment going to be too big for them? At least two players on their team, Travis Etienne and quarterback Trevor Lawrence, they've been in big games in college at Clemson. And yes, college is a different animal than the NFL, but at least they can draw on that experience. Now, Jacksonville did play at Kansas City in week 11. They lost 27 to 17. They got down 20 to nothing in the second quarter. We're able to cut it to 20 to 10 before the Jaguars pulled away. So at least they can look at that tape and see what was working, any sort of adjustments that they need to make. But overall, what I'm going to be looking for watching this game is, you know, can Jacksonville eliminate mistakes and turnovers? I'm not saying minimize. I'm saying eliminate. Obviously, if Trevor Lawrence throws four interceptions in the first half, there will be no comeback. They will. They might lose this game by 40 points. So it's not minimize. It's eliminate. They almost have to play a perfect game. They have to stick with the run no matter what the Chiefs are doing. I think the Chiefs can be run on. They have a dynamic back in ETN, both running the ball and catching the ball. And Trevor Lawrence, while I don't think they're going to call designed, many designed runs for him, he can break the pocket and pick up four, five, six yards, maybe move the chains on a third down. Can the the Jacksonville Jaguars defense make Kansas City one-dimensional? I think they could because the Chiefs make themselves one-dimensional. They don't really commit to the run, whether it is Isaiah Pacheco, whether it is um, Jarek McKinnon. And does Jack, you know, can Jacksonville's secondary hold up? If the Chiefs are going to play bombs away, can their defensive ends of Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker, the number one pick in the draft, who's had an underwhelming season, can they get home? Can they get to, to Mahomes, sack him on third down, strip sack, fumble, interception, help their secondary out a little bit? And this game is not going to be one with field goals. They need to be aggressive. Fortunately, Doug Peterson has got a sack on him. So he's he's not going to shy away from the moment. And I think one other thing to contain, too, that's opened up the Chiefs offense a bit is running back Jarek McKinnon with his second year back on the with the team. He has a receiving touchdown in six straight games. Can they keep him out of the end zone? Can they limit Travis Kelsey? He went over 1,300 yards this year, over 100 catches. He's the only receiver that went over 1,000. So between Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Juju Smith-Schuster, they have other weapons. Kelsey is 
the big one. Now, you don't want to devote too much time to Kelsey because you're going to leave other people open and Mahomes is going to find them. But can they maybe not have Kelsey be such an offensive hammer against them? Maybe keep him under 100, keep him out of the end zone. This is a lot for a Jacksonville Jaguar team to do. Maybe their best shot is to outgun them somehow. Maybe they play ball control. I don't, it's a pick your poison against Kansas City, right? Again, kudos to Doug Peterson, Trevor Lawrence making a big leap in his second year. Again, I just think it's a year too early, and I think Kansas City wins this game 33 to 20. Next up, it's the the Saturday night game. So 8-15 on Fox, the Giants at the Eagles. So the Giants advanced beating Minnesota in the wild card round, and quarterback Daniel Jones. Had a good game against the Vikings. 301 passing yards, two touchdowns. Ran the ball 17 times for 78 yards. But we have to remember, the Vikings defense is terrible. They're bottom three in the league in basically every category. So while everybody's drooling over him and how good Daniel Jones is, and they want to talk about an extension, and he should get an extension, I'm still wondering what I think he's worth because he's worth... I'll use the word more to the to the Giants than any other team. So I don't think the Giants need to really overbid with anybody to keep Daniel Jones around. But I also think $20 million may insult per year may insult Daniel Jones and his representation. But that, you know, that's a discussion for the offseason. Keep this in mind, everybody. The Giants don't have a lot of weapons. If you want to call Daniel Jones a weapon, go ahead. I won't argue with you all that much. They have Saquon Barkley and not much else. Daniel Jones threw for 300 or more yards three times if you combine the regular season and the postseason. Twice was against Minnesota. Once was against Detroit. Otherwise, he threw for less than 200 yards in 10 of his 15 games. Don't let facts and stats get in the way of People dropping to their knees and enjoying Daniel Jones' genitals, you know, this week on ESPN and NFL Network and certainly local sports talk radio in the Northeast. The Eagles are not the Vikings. Philadelphia, while maybe their offense is, is similar statistically, they're the number three offense, they're num- overall, they're number nine passing, number five rushing, and number three points scored, averaging 28 a game. Defensively, they're number two overall, number one against the pass, 17th against the run, and eighth eighth in points allowed, allowing 20.2 points per game. How did their stars line up? Now, Jalen Hurts missed the last couple games of the regular season, not including the um, season finale. He went 3,700 yards, 22 touchdowns, six interceptions, added 760 yards on the ground, and 13 touchdowns. Miles Sanders at running back, 1,270 yards and 11 touchdowns. Their receiver duo of A.J. Brown, 1,500 yards and 11 touchdowns, and Devontae Smith, 1,200 yards and 7 touchdowns. And to round it out, Dallas Goddard at tight end, 700 yards and 3 touchdowns. Philadelphia's got weapons. Philadelphia's going to pose challenges that the Vikings never did on offense, and certainly Philadelphia's defense is going to challenge the Giants' infinitely more than the Vikings ever did. So though, you know, Philadelphia beat the Giants twice in the regular season, four weeks apart in week 14 at New York, Philadelphia won 48-22. Giants were never in this game. 
And then last week of the season, the Eagles won 20 to six, 22 to 16. The Giants were basically resting almost everybody. And the Eagles needed the game for um, the number one seed in home field advantage throughout the NFC playoffs. Jalen Hurts' first game back could have been a little bit rusty. Maybe the Giants' backups were super amped to play. Philly never trailed. The Giants scored a garbage touchdown in uh, with about a minute and a half to go. So it was basically a 22-9 game. For the Giants to win this game, they need to rattle Jalen Hurts early and often. And whether that's Wink Martindale blitzing his brains out, trying to get to Hurts, controlling him in the pocket, getting hits on him, forcing turnovers. They need to, and maybe, you know, maybe a tackle, the best scenario for the Giants, and I'm not wishing injury on anybody, is tackling Jalen Hurts and maybe his shoulder gets irritated again. Maybe he plays through it, but it's just not as effective. Can the Giants control the clock on the ground against the, a, a rush defense that's middle of the pack? They have to do that, but they still have to be explosive. Again, this is a team in Philadelphia. The Giants aren't going to slow them down all that much. 48 points when everyone was healthy, 22 points two weeks ago when Hertz was coming back. The, the Giants need to play more or less a perfect game, and Daniel Jones needs to match or outplay Jalen Hurts just because of the severe lack of offensive weapons otherwise that the Giants have, Jones needs to overcome and compensate that to keep the Giants in the game. I don't think he can do that. I think the Minnesota games and the Detroit games are the aberration. I think Daniel Jones is a an around 180 to 210 passing yards per game, at least with this offense. In the offseason, they can maybe go out and get a receiver or two to help Daniel Jones. But I think right now he is what his regular season said he was. He threw 15 passing touchdowns, 3,200 yards and five interceptions. That's not fantastic. When you play against a bad defense, he looks better than he is. I think the Giants can make it interesting for a half, but I think Philadelphia ultimately pulls away. They're just too good on both sides of the ball. They win 37 to 20. And last but not least, the Sunday game at three o'clock, Cincinnati at Buffalo. It's a rematch of the Monday night game where DeMar Hamlin was injured. At the time, Cincinnati was up 7-3 to in the first quarter. There's nothing you can take away from that half or three quarters of a quarter that could tell you anything about how this game is going to play out. But in terms of the weapons, you know, I, you can make the case that Cincinnati has the more impressive array of weapons than the Bills do. So Cincinnati rolls with Joe Burrow at quarterback, Joe Mixon at running back, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd at receiver, Hayden Hurst at tight end, the Bills, Josh Allen at quarterback, Devin Singletary at running back, Stephon Diggs, Gabe Davis, and I guess Cole Beasley as the number three at receiver, and Dawson Knox at tight end. These teams are very close statistically when you're looking at total offense, um, passing offense, total defense, pass defense, run defense. There's instances where Cincinnati's ahead, instances where Buffalo's ahead. Even with points scored and points allowed, they're close. The biggest gap, interestingly enough, is when you compare the team's rushing offenses. Buffalo is number seven in the league running the ball, and that has to do with the fact that they get 50 or so yards a game from Josh Allen. They're averaging 139.5 yards a game, and Cincinnati is 29th 
averaging just 95.5 yards a game. I don't think this is a game where whoever controls the clock is going to win. You'd love to say if you're either team, because of how explosive the other offense is, especially passing-wise for both offenses, that if either team can run the ball for 125 yards, 150 yards, maybe get 30 carries in, limit a possession or two for the other team, that they have a good chance winning. But I feel like this game is going to be bombs away. Each quarterback's going to throw it 40, 45 times. It's going to be an emotional game at home. The fact that it is the Bengals makes it even more so. Cincinnati's an interesting team. I feel like they can win a game anywhere, anytime, even though their defense statistically isn't great, middle of the pack. This is a team that beat Kansas City three straight times. And if you're going to beat the Chiefs, forget once or twice, but three straight times, yes, you have to score on offense, but you have to limit and slow down the Chiefs on defense. Not many teams can do that, let alone three consecutive times. They can go to Buffalo and win, like the Minnesota Vikings did earlier in the season. Granted, they were aided by a miraculous catch by Justin Jefferson on fourth down and 18, I believe it was, to keep that game going. This is a game where I like whoever is home. I think the teams being even to such a degree and it's Buffalo, it's going to be cold. It'll be cold in Cincinnati too. Don't get me wrong. Bills mafia. That stadium is going to be so loud. You know, I don't know. Are the bills a team of destiny? Hard, hard to say. Um, But the fact that this is going to be an orchard park, I give The three points that teams get at home when you're betting to the Bills, and I think they win 27 to 24. So that concludes our podcast for this week. Had a pretty robust podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We obviously have playoff football coming starting on Saturday, ending on Sunday night with the Niners and Cowboys. The marquee games are obviously, feel like they're on Sunday, Bengals, Bills, Niners Cowboys, but I'm hoping for just a good slate overall Saturday and Sunday, and we'll see where we end up for championship game weekend. Beyond that, have a good week. Stay safe. Enjoy all the other sports that are on, whether it's European soccer, basketball, hockey, tennis, Australian Open is on. Enjoy it, and we will talk soon. Take care.